Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News travel editor Peter Greenberg. Hi there, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, we continue to ask questions about the real value of most airline frequent flyer programs. The numbers are indeed disturbing, and if you're a frequent flyer like me, they could be downright depressing. We'll talk about that with aviation expert and the business of aviation expert, Mike Boyd. Then we'll report on the latest State Department travel advisory, this one asking Americans to reconsider travel to Jamaica and the impact of that advisory, not to mention, should it be believed? And we'll speak with Jamaica Minister of Tourism, Edmund Bartlett. Plus, I'll have a few things to say. And batting third, actor, writer, producer, and director Andrew McCarthy goes beyond the Brat Pack to talk about his latest book, Walking with Sam, and how travel can often forge strong and unexpected lifelong bonds with a few people you love, in his case, his son, and what that experience can teach all of us. First up, my conversation with Mike Boyd. Frequent Flyer Programs. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great-tasting, high-quality organic dairy ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. 
Welcome back, Michael Boyd. Thank you, sir. It is always an honor. So here's my question, and I hope it's not so rhetorical, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What's the point of an airline loyalty program that no longer rewards you for your loyalty? All right, that was the rhetorical question, because we're now living in a situation where there are 34 trillion unredeemed airline miles out there that probably will never be redeemed. We're all addicted to the program. There are more than 320 million Americans who have at least one account with an airline. And, you know, we love getting miles for everything short of breathing. And the airlines have made it so impossible to earn the miles and even more impossible to redeem the miles. And we're addicted to these programs. And by the same token, the airlines themselves are addicted to the programs because it's their largest source of revenue. They make more money from the airline frequent flyer programs than they make as operating airlines. What's going on, Michael? Yeah, you know, it's affinity credit cards where they make a lot of money and you earn miles. But, you know, it used to be 80,000 miles to get round trip to business class to, to Australia. You know, now it's 380. So not only are there not a lot of seats left, if you, there are a couple seats left, you know, the, the, the miles aren't worth a third of what they were 10 years ago. Back when they started this in 1981, you know, America was the first major carrier to do it. There were other carriers that did it. But you had a 60% load factor, and 40% of your seats on average were going empty. You could afford to do this to get brand loyalty. Today, they don't need that, and they really should be honest and saying, we don't need these programs anymore. And besides that, we can't give you a free seat because there's none available. You know, thanks for the, thanks for the vote, sucker. Well, remember, they have the right within their contract that you saw when you when you joined the program that they can change the rules at any time and they can end the program at any time. Yep, they have that there. Basically, maybe they should do the honorable thing and end the program and stop you know, putting out ads saying, look at all the miles you can get for a free vacation or a free trip. When first of all, in a lot of cases, the service level is such you don't want another free trip. <laughs> but second of all, you can afford to take it in terms of the miles you got. And thirdly, they just don't have any seats to bill. I, I've literally seen like four-stop flights from Denver to Honolulu with frequent flyer miles. That's how they routed you, you know, through, you know, you know, practically through Omaha to get there. That's nonsense. Let's be honest about it. You don't need this for brand loyalty anymore because they don't care so much about your brand loyalty. Yeah, I know that, yeah, but, but you know what? You're right about that with one problem. They do need the revenue, and the revenue that they're getting from the frequent flyer programs is what's keeping this whole charade going. I mean, have you been on a flight lately, and I asked my listeners the same question, where the flight attendants weren't going up and down the aisle soliciting you to, to sign up for another uh, airline affinity credit card that would earn you miles? And, and what they're saying in their sales spiel, if I hear it one more time for the Barclay card on American, I think I will have to use the vomit bag, is... If you just sign up for the card and spend just $1, you're going to get 50,000 miles, a good for two free tickets anywhere we fly. Well, that's a lie. You're going to get the 50,000 miles, and you might as well go to an art supply store and frame them because you're not going anywhere they're flying. You might go to Des Moines on a Wednesday night at 11 o'clock in the middle of November. That's a, and they're not honest about that. But it's the credit cards that make it. Remember, uh, Air Canada, before they sold out Aeroplan, was the biggest credit card in Canada. The Air Canada credit card. You know, now it's somebody else, but nevertheless, these are huge things where they make money with it. But the way they get us into it is say, if you use my card, 
uh, you'll get miles. Well, so what if I get miles? Look, honestly, I use a Nordstrom's card because I get discounts on clothes. It's far more valuable than miles on an airline. Well, a lot of my friends are getting rid of their airline mileage cards and getting cash back cards because at least it's something that's tangible. Absolutely. And and again, the the day of reckoning is coming. I think we've had this contact. You've brought this up before, but is there an issue of fraud here by saying we're going to give you something that they know logically they may not be able to deliver? And I, I have to go along with that, to be blunt. Well, let's face it. You know, the airlines are are buying miles. Excuse me, they're selling miles to the to American Express for Delta and to Citibank for American and to Chase for for United and for Southwest. And they're selling it at about one point two cents a mile. And they know when they sell it to these banks, and the banks know when they're buying it that the mileage that they're that they're buying that they're then giving you for your purchases, no one's going to be able to chance to redeem them. The, the average redemption rate of an airline for frequent flyer miles is about 8%. And I like to joke that mafia loan sharks don't get that kind of rate of return. Uh, that mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. And so the airlines are addicted to the program because of the revenue. We're addicted to the program because of the promise that's not being delivered. And then there's one more thing, Michael. And that is if you look at the 10K reports filed by these publicly held corporations, otherwise known as the airlines, they report to the SEC their, their statement of liability. And they're carrying all these unredeemed frequent flyer miles on their books as a liability, which in itself is fraudulent and phony because they're the ones who control the redemption. They're, they're, carrying, they're carrying it as a liability that they actually don't have. Well, the whole raison d'etre, the whole reason for frequent flyer programs, which was to fill seats that were going to go empty anyway, that died 10 years ago because flights that were, had been full, give or take a, a COVID event or two, they've, they're full. So the whole reason for frequent flyer programs is gone. American put it there so you wouldn't fly Braniff or Continental or Northwest or Ozark or North Central. Hello, they're gone. Right. So now you're dealing with the, uh, in an oligopoly situation where there's no, I hate to use the word regulation, but there's nobody minding the store to make sure that people are keeping their promise. I mean, I'm suspicious of, 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 well, I won't say that. I will say this. I suspect that within the next 12 months, this is getting so crazy that you may see some activity from the Federal Trade Commission or from some U.S. attorneys general or some class action lawsuits, simply because promises were made, and at the time the promises were made, the person making the company making the promise had to have known they could not keep the promise. Yeah, well, that's just it. And airlines have a responsibility. And the issue is if they push this to the point where the feds get involved, no one's going to win. It's not going to be good for the consumer because they're going to you know, make a mess of it. So airlines have a responsibility to clean this up on their own. And, you know, again, a lot of this is, you know, if you get into our frequent flyer program, look at all you're going to get. I'm not getting diddly. I mean, just like I said, I, I use a clothing store card now because I, I can get free, you know, free underwear. It's a whole lot more valuable. Which, by the way, I encourage you to wear in the next time you fly. <laughs> but, but the, 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 <laughs> we'll let that go. Yeah, let's let that go. But, but the bottom line here is it's not getting better. It's getting worse because it's, the, the, the number of unredeemed miles is growing almost exponentially. 
the frustration among uh, travelers who are, are chasing after all these miles to get to mileage tier levels that actually have very little meaning, that's growing. And at a certain point, there's going to be a collision. It has to be. Well, you know, another thing that used to be, they would go up to gold. They're running out of minerals. They've gone to platinum and ruby and spent uranium and whatever. There's nothing else. You know, there's, there's so much bracket creep that if you are a gold person, you're not going to get on anything. So the point is, unless you fly like a certain person I'm speaking to now, huh. where you do buy, you're just not going to get enough miles to make any difference. Besides, if you fly that much, you've been abused so much, or you've been, you're so worn out, you don't want to get on an airplane again. Well, that's the point. The point is, I can sit at this microphone and brag to you and everybody else about how many million miles I have, which, by the way, I do. But what's the point of bragging about all those miles if I have no chance to redeem them? What's the point? Exactly. Again, they have to clean this up, and you hit it on the head. There's going to be some federal intervention if it is. Airlines won't win. The consumer ultimately won't win. But the airlines are causing it to happen. They just got to wake up and understand that the frequent flyer program that was put together is the basis for it evaporated, and the way it's being administered, like you said, could constructively look like some something they're putting over on the public. My thanks to Mike, and none of you will be receiving any frequent flyer miles for that conversation. Here are three words that almost automatically have a negative connotation. State Department Advisory. When you hear it, do you almost immediately change your travel plans? Consider the current state of Jamaica and the State Department Advisory warning Americans to reconsider travel there. I talked with Jamaica's Minister of Tourism, Ed Bartlett, about cause and effect. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello, Edmund. How are you today, Peter? And I'm very happy to share in this discussion with you. Well, and, you know um, what? I'm, I'm, I'm sure anytime you're dealing with a country, and Jamaica is one of them, where your GDP is so dependent on travel and tourism, the words State Department Advisory on any level has a negative impact. Well, you know, we recognize um, advisors for what they are. We always work very hard to make sure that the, the best reporting is done and the best consideration is always done in terms of ensuring that the 
safe, secure, and seamless experience that we offer to visitors is a reality in every form. So, you know, whatever uh, there may be the evaluations, we, are, have a, we have a commitment, a strong and abiding commitment to ensure that the safety, security, and seamlessness of your experience is never second-guessed. I got that, oh, but, let, but, let, but let me ask you a question, though. And the question is this. If there's a riot in Cincinnati, that doesn't mean I can't go to Cleveland. There are parts of Los Angeles I wouldn't go to after 10 o'clock at night, but that doesn't stop me from living in Los Angeles. And the same thing applies to just about anywhere else in the world, with one exception. You know, of all these travel advisories, the only time I won't go somewhere is if something else is in place, if nobody's in control. You know, I'm not going to Syria. I'm not going to parts of Ukraine. I'm not going to parts of Yemen. I'm not going to parts of, um, of Sierra Leone, maybe. But I've just run out of places I wouldn't go. I mean, I, would I go to North Korea tomorrow? Yes, I know who's in control. Same thing with Iran. Same thing. I mean, it's, it's a very interesting painting with a broad brush problem that when you issue a State Department advisory to an entire country without recognizing that we live in cities, towns, villages, and regions, you're, you may be doing everybody, the citizens of that country and the people who want to visit them, a disservice. Well, you know, that uh, kind of appreciation is useful for all to know. Um, the reality for us in Jamaica is that we have a 42% repeat business, which is phenomenal, one. And two, that 0.01% of all the crimes committed in the entire country is against a visitor. So when, when you put that together and the fact that 74% of our tourists are from the United States and 68% are women, uh, that is a strong safety record that we can always um, rely on. So, you know, notwithstanding how a characterization may be, these are hard, strong statistics that you cannot second guess. And the so other we, thing we is, just and, 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 appreciate it all around and that the glory of our destination has always been in the response of the people who have come. And they repeat and they come again. And it's also intergenerational so that the average person who you see in Jamaica, his grandfather came, his grandmother came, and he has been coming and is cheering also. Minister Bartlett, one of the stories that I'm, I always deal with is all the advisories that the U.S. State Department has issued to Mexico. And I've covered that country so many years and with uh, different presidents and different State Department advisories. And one thing I find interesting is if you take a look at the sheer numbers of violent crime in Mexico, as you just stated in, in talking about Jamaica, whatever violent crime there is, especially gang-related crime, we see that, of course, with the drug cartels, it's against other drug cartels. It's not against visitors. Hardly anything ever happens. You know, 65,000 people killed in gang violence in Mexico. How many Americans have been killed? About 13. And of those 13 who were killed, I think nine were visiting American drug dealers. So we have to put this in, in the proper context. And that brings me back to Jamaica. Uh, when a State Department advisory comes out, you can almost see that, you know, the, the cause and effect in terms of visitor numbers, because Americans, look, the worst four-letter word that starts with F is fear. And you see it with American travelers saying, oh, there's an advisory, I'm not going. I like to joke that the State Department advisory for Turkey 
is that be aware that, that Turkish drivers pass on the left as well as on the right. Have they been on a U.S. interstate highway? Is that going to stop me from going to Turkey? It shouldn't. But when we hear the word State Department advisory, it has a, such a negative connotation, we begin to hesitate or maybe we don't go. So my question to you, Minister, is given the fact that the U.S. State Department has not only issued this Level 3 advisory and that they're telling their own personnel not to travel to many cities and in, in regions in, in, in Jamaica, how do you overcome this now? Well, you know, you begin on the original discussion we had this morning that the best example of how people view you is their own experiences. And that whether 42% repeat business, it tells you that people are happy about their experience in Jamaica, that they feel safe and that they feel comfortable. But there's also our own actions that we have to take in terms of building out a narrative that is understood, one. But two, creating certain uh, infrastructure arrangements that give comfort and that gives um, a sense of, 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 of comfort to the visitors who come. So we in Jamaica have developed for the first time in the history of tourism in the world a destination assurance policy, which speaks to all the moving parts that are important to come together to make a tourism experience. So that we work with the security forces, we work with the, um, the, the, the health security groups, we work with the local government people, we work with our public health um, officers, we work with all the partners to ensure that when the visitor comes to Jamaica, from he arrives at the airport, through the airport experiences, until he travels on our roadway to the hotels, the experience at the hotels and to the attraction, restaurants, and everywhere that he goes, that things are in pristine condition. And that is why, in fairness, irrespective of what the advisors may say, the experience of our visitors have been so different. And of course, there's just basic common sense. You know, no matter where you're going, whether it's Jamaica or, you know, Tennessee, it doesn't matter. There are certain things that smart travelers do, and there are certain things that smart travelers don't do, whether you're in your own hometown or whether you're visiting somebody else's hometown. And other than that, you know, check with locals, get their, you know, nothing beats local knowledge, and it shouldn't stop you from going. I should also say in the, in the interest of full disclosure, and the minister knows this, I'm in Jamaica about four times a year, and I'm, al- I'm alive. What do you know? I survived. Uh, I'm joking, of course, but but I'm not joking no, about no, but here, that. That, in all fairness, is the best testimony. It is that you have been four times, and it comports to the argument that I make with regards to the repeat business levels in Jamaica. So, and the point that must be emphasized is that um, a lot of destinations sometimes are locations, locations for all sorts of actions and activities which emanate from elsewhere. And I think that we are no exception in that. So you are right that sometimes grievances from a destination finds itself into mind, but it becomes part of my statistics. And, um, and nobody makes a difference when advisors are made. But having said all of that, advisors also serve the purpose of giving you the necessary um, tools to work with. It enables you to get better performance and better outcomes in your destination. My thanks to Minister Bartlett. 
Travel, they say, is often the great equalizer. I also like to think of it as the great determinator. If you can travel with someone and survive that stress, you'll probably marry them. And if it happens to be your son, perhaps the trip forces you to actually speak to each other and forge some unanticipated common ground. That's the reason for Walking with Sam, written by actor, writer, producer, Andrew McCarthy. Andrew, welcome. Good to be with you, Peter. Let's talk about this because you and I share one thing in common, among other things, I suppose, and that is a passion for travel. We do it every chance we get. Um, some of us are unstoppable in that endeavor. Uh, but this is a different, <laughs> but, 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 but this particular book chronicles a different kind of a passion and a different kind of experience, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a walk across the uh, the ancient Camino de Santiago in northern Spain for 500 miles that I took with my 19-year-old son as he was just sort of cusping manhood, and we were I had a goal of trying to rewrite our relationship as two adults to each other, and uh, I thought a nice long walk might do that. <laughs> well, you know, travel, I've always said this in so many different ways and so many different manifestations, travel is the great determinator. It's also the great equalizer. You know, when, when someone is first starting to date a guy or a woman's just starting to date a woman or anybody starting to date anybody, I always tell them, take a trip together. You will find out immediately whether you marry this person or you kill them because it's, 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 it's how you handle the stress of travel, the unexpected nature of travel, the left turns when you're supposed to turn right, the unplanned experiences that may change your life. And I, I suppose that's what happened to you in this book. Yeah, it also actually, you know, one of the things I love to talk about about travel is that it, it taps into the wonder of travel and, and reconnects us to that sort of innocence and that wide-eyed optimism that we started with and has gotten beaten out of so many of us so much of the time. But yeah, I think you're right. It, you know, travel really starts to happen when things go wrong. And you really see who you're traveling with for sure at that moment. And it's how you handle it. You know, I've, I've, I've seen relationships end at baggage claim. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, <laughs> I mean, literally, you know, and, and I've also seen relationships start at baggage claim because it's how you, how you adjust and how you recover. Cause what travel really is, it's really all about adjusting. Well, and also it just reveals what you're saying. Yeah. Is it reveals your, you to yourself in a very real way, you know, and, Things when things start to go wrong. That as a travel writer, that's certainly when you know you have a story. When things start to go wrong, I mean, I was writing a story about Petra in Jordan, and I wrote about the lovely stone things. But then when I got a flat tire and some guy kind of came and helped me change my flat tire, that's when I knew I had a story. You know? Exactly. I mean, that's that is really the beauty and the, and the promise, if you will, of travel. When plans don't go the way they're supposed to go. Uh, when you turn left instead of turning right or you get lost, that's a big part of travel, getting lost. And all of a sudden you meet somebody who becomes your best friend for life and it wasn't planned. Yeah, I mean, I met my wife in Ireland when I, I made a wrong turn and I, I helped her. She was somebody missed a bus and I helped her and suddenly, you know, 20 years later, we've got some kids and a whole other life. So I know exactly of what you speak. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this book I talked about, I've walked this 500 miles with my son. And that certainly every day, I mean, he was a 19-year-old kid. And uh, I couldn't get him out of bed in the morning. And the fights we used to have every day to get going were just like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, but 
we certainly found out a lot about each other, which was sort of the goal of the trip, you know. I think all we ever want is to be seen by people and, you know, just see me. And I, I think as parents, we sometimes don't really see our kids. And my son said to me, I think I put it in the book, he also said, you know, it takes a long time, if ever, for, for kids to see their parents as real people. And I think that's really true. And in travel, though, like you've been going through, that's when you really see people for who they really are. And that's, you know, why I wanted to make this walk with him. And why did you pick this particular location and this particular walk? Well, I had done the Camino uh, 25 years earlier. And the Camino, for those who don't know, is an ancient pilgrimage route started in the ninth century across the north of Spain when the Catholic Church said that the bones of the Apostle James had been found in the farther and westernmost reach of the Iberian Peninsula, and anybody who marched there would get half their time in purgatory knocked off, which is, you know, a good deal, right? But anyway, <laughs> over the centuries, it's evolved, and, and sort of popularity's waxed and waned, but it's become popular again in the second half of the 20th century. And I, I walked it 25 years ago with no religious real reasons, but uh, I, I think I, I needed a good long walk. And it really brought me home to myself in a way that I hadn't anticipated. I, I think I had some bit of what we now call imposter syndrome when I was young and successful in the movies and all that. I think I was looking for something without even knowing I was looking. And the Camino de Santiago certainly does that to one. I'm not the only one who's had a sort of a profound life-changing experience on the Camino. And so I wanted to revisit that again in my in my life. And, you know, like I said, when my, as my son was cusping manhood, I thought it be valuable for him too. The shocker was he agreed to go with me. <laughs> I was getting to that. Yeah, that was the surprise. <laughs> that was the surprise. That, uh, but he, I, I caught him in a weak moment. He had just broken up with his girlfriend, and he was moping around the house. And I said, "Sam, you finally want to do that Camino?" Because I, of course, been boasting about the Camino for all his life. And he said to me, "Yeah, fine." And so in that instant, I went into the other room. I went to the computer, bought two tickets to Spain. And two days later, we were walking before he knew what hit him, you know. <laughs> and, you know, on day two, he said to me, Dad, what's the point of this effing walk? And, you know, he didn't say effing. And at, on the last day, he said to me, Dad, it's the only 10 out of 10 thing I've ever done in my life. So, you know, the Camino well, had its effect on him. Well, you know, whether it was the Camino in Spain or Sepulveda Boulevard in Los Angeles, if you travel and you walk, you have no choice but to talk. You know, part of travel is the conversation you have along the way. And that, I'm sure, played a huge role in the success of this book and the success of your experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, walking is our natural rhythm we've gotten so far away from. It's a rhythm we process things in and feel things with sort of fully. And yes, when you're walking and you just start talking. And the wonderful thing about walking and talking is you talk about profound and deep things and you talk about mundane and silly things that often they have equal importance in the talk, you know, and stuff just naturally comes up and moves around. And, and it is an amazing way to get to know your partner and or yourself. You know, I did, I walked this walk all across the Camino alone the first time I did a quarter century ago and it was deeply, you know, meaningful to me. In this process of, of walking, how long did it take you? About a month. You walk about 12, 15 miles a day. So you weren't getting crazy about it, but you were literally having the time to look around and discover things as well. It wasn't, this was not like a, you know, a long marathon. It was really just a long walk. It's a long walk, you know, and it's not like the Appalachian Trail or something where you're carrying your whole world on your back. You're walking in and out of little villages. You know, there's something fascinating about walking from a village of 12 people in the morning and then walking into a city of Burgos of 250,000 people. 
you know, and, and sort of emerging back into society. And then to me, what was even more interesting was re-emerging back out into the, the quiet, you know, leaving a city and walking out of the city into back out into the wheat fields, you know, and it's not something we do in our day-to-day life. That's something that's so interesting about the Camino. It passes through all these little villages and big cities. So there's all sorts of culture going on that you're, you're a part of. It's, you're not just out in the wilderness, you know, and so you really feel like you're a part of Spain and, and the culture of it is one of the huge aspects of, of the Camino. All right, stupid question, Andrew. How's your Spanish? Muy malo. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> I speak, yeah, right. I speak Spanish just enough to sort of, I speak pilgrim Spanish. Let me, let me help know, you. Let, let, a place. Yeah, like, let me help you. Donde esta el baño? There you go. Exactly. <laughs> Exactamente, <laughs> uh, amigo. Uh, yeah, so that's the, and you know, but what's wonderful about Spain particularly, they don't, they don't, you know, they help you along, particularly when you're out in the country. People are just, they know what you're doing. If you're walking this, the Camino, they sort of, they love pilgrims, you know, and so they do everything they can to help you along, which is really nice. All right, forgetting your Spanish, or lack of it, uh, it really forced you to communicate in other ways, right? Well, I mean, you do do a lot of silly hand gestures. <laughs> embarrassing kind of thing that, that's for sure but you know it's amazing how quickly you get over that embarrassment when you really need something and uh, except for my son was there to remind me like dad you look like an idiot I'm like thank you, Sam. you know? what did you discover about yourself on this that was completely a surprise to you well hey, uh, uh, to back it up even further the first time I walked it 25 years ago I had a revelation on the walk that really that changed my life it, it, it started me traveling the world and why I became a travel writer you know halfway into the walk there's a there are fields of wheat that go on for days, and it kind of makes you a little crazy. Don Quixote was got lost in these fields, and it was no wonder he was tilting at windmills, you know. So, uh, I had a kind of white light experience where I fell down in a, a field of wheat and was sobbing, and it dawned on me in a way that it never had before how much fear had dominated my life, you know. And and it was a, a real revelation that moment, and I felt like myself for the first time in a as long as I could remember when that fear was lifted from me and it changed my place in the world. And so it's why I started traveling the world and it's why I became a travel writer because of that instant. And so when I invited my son to go along, I just thought he might, uh, I wanted to revisit that feeling inside myself and to just get to see him, you know, it's all we all want in life is see me, see me. And so to get to see who he is as a young man and sort of, I was privy to, became privy to his sort of emotional courage in a certain way that I wouldn't have anticipated. And he got to see me as a totally fallible, you know, fool that I am as opposed to being a dad, you know? (laughs) So I think we just got to know each other in a a real way. And I think he he sums it up by going, well, I trust you a lot more dad now. (laughs) So I thought that was kind of nice. But you know, part of travel, we talked about this earlier is when things go wrong. What went wrong on this trip? Oh, kind of everything. <laughs> the beauty of, you know, we have such naturally different rhythms, my son and I. So, you know, I'm up at the crack of dawn. He's up at the crack of noon. And, you know, I'm getting blisters and he wasn't getting any blisters. He was skipping across the country. And he, you know, 19, I was 58. And I'm wearing down as he's getting stronger. And it was just seeing the sort of the microcosm of and metaphor of, our life in the trip, in the journey from beginning to end. At the beginning, you know, I was leading him and showing him the way to go and ordering for him because he was afraid to speak Spanish. And by the end, he was sort of 
pull, dragging me across the finish line. And so to have that kind of reversal and the sort of freedom of that was surprising to me in a delightful kind of way. And the obvious question, of course, is how did it change you? You know, I learned not to have to have an answer all the time, Peter. You know what I mean? <laughs> As parents, we always feel like we should advise and counsel and warn and give them the benefit of our wisdom and all that. And I had the ultimate luxury uh, that a parent has an adult child, which is the luxury of time. You know, I, all I had to do was walk beside him and just listen. So much of the time I learned, just keep your mouth shut, Anthony. Just let him talk and let him sort it out. You know, last week my son called me up when we got, and he said, Dad, you got nine minutes? And I said, go. <laughs> and, you know, he, he did, and I don't think that call would have happened before we went. You know, he just had to talk something through and process it, and he trusted me to receive it without being a know-it-all dad and telling him what he ought to do. You know, and I, for me to learn to just shut up <laughs> was a revelation. Because all one we really want, you know, we just need to be together. We don't need to, you know, solve other people's lives. But isn't that the lesson for all of us when we travel, to shut up and listen, to shut up and and, 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 well, be, and begin to hear and be able to accept? I think that's, you know, if we have that lesson in our, all our lives, let alone travel. But that's what travel does so well for us. It just, it brings that right to the fore because we're out of our comfort zone when we travel. So we're more vulnerable and people, you know, vulnerability gets a bad rap. But asking people for help. Like on the road, even when I don't need it sometimes, I'll just go up and ask someone for help. And invariably, people always say yes. The world's a much more welcoming place than I've been led to believe. And that kind of connection that happens with people from abroad when we travel is a really profound thing. And we just learn we don't need to be as afraid of the world as we've so often been told. I, I To me, that's, that was life-changing. And of course, one of the ways of dealing with that fear, at least successfully for me, is a perpetual pursuit of common ground. You know, if you can exactly. if you can find common ground with anybody, it usually happens when you're traveling because you share at least one thing in common, right? You're there together, wherever that is. It's amazing what comes out of that. Yeah, and and the local people, I mean, they just, you know, they want the same things we want. You know, they want their kids to have a better life than they did. They want their family to be happy. You know, everyone really wants, it's, it's wonderful to go out and see, oh, everybody just, they're different, all their customs are different, they look different, their language is different, but underneath it all, we're all just kind of the same. And and the relief in that and the connection that happens in that is kind of thrilling. And then we bring that feeling home and we come back changed from that. And, you know, that's why I often say I'm out to change the world one travel article at a time. Because if I write <laughs> something and people then want to go and they get off the couch and go and they come back changed from that, I've had a very good day. My thanks to Andrew, to Mike Boyd, and to Minister Edmund Bartlett from Jamaica. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you know what to do. And while you won't earn any mileage, you might get some valuable information. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. Hey, Prime members, Peter Greenberg here. You can listen to Ion Travel ad free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, and you can listen ad free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. 
And before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Hey, it's Matt Norlander with the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast, and it is tournament time, people. So listen to the one podcast that will cover every upset, Cinderella, Bracket Buster Sleeper. We've got it all covered, every round, reaction shows, all the way up through the championship game in Glendale, Arizona. To find us, search Eye on College Basketball podcast wherever you get your podcasts.